when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. My fundamental reaction to the Banner Saga 3 is one of vindication. It turns out this was a journey worth taking, and a world worth keeping my heart for the last few years. In the end, it has justified its stylistic and narrative choices, and surpassed the hopes I had for it back when I played the first part of the trilogy. This final act may not offer a comfortable or easy resolution, but then again, that was never really in the cards. Like I said before, it's not that kind of story, and wishing it were otherwise only makes things worse. That was, of course, Rob Zachney uh, reading his own review of The Banner Saga 3, titled, The Final Act of The Banner Saga Cements Its Bleak Greatness. I'm Danielle Riendo, and this is Waypoint Radio, episode 175. In addition to Rob, joining me today, of course, is Patrick Klepek. Hello. Uh, the True Gamer, and uh, Austin Walker. Hey, how's it going? All right, everybody. So today, I figured for topics, since we had this lovely review uh, by Rob, uh, we would talk a bit about sort of final chapters uh, in sagas of games, or sagas of games. Was, I'm on a saga trip here with the Banner Saga, uh, but well, sort of final. Believe me, that was a real problem when I was oh, writing boy. that review. I'm sure you were like, and this in this saga, at the end of my long saga... Uh, well, the entire point was like, I was like, oh, it truly became a saga. But how the fuck do you say that about a game called the Banner Saga? You were waving your banner uh, for the truest saga that you had gone through. Uh, sojourn? Should we? Maybe we could do a sojourn. Uh, but our... Oh, fuck, I should have gone <laughs> yeah, sojourn. Uh, taking it off from that, our experiences with games that are long-running series, or even if not long-running, uh, series that actually attempt to have closure and attempt to actually tell a concrete, uh, basically, story. So... Rob, it sounds like this one was one of very, very few for you that actually did it in the end, that actually closed off its story in something like a satisfying way, even if it wasn't necessarily a happy ending. Uh, and that is, it seems to me, quite rare uh, in games, or at least in my experience it is. Yeah, I think... But one of the reasons I think this works is because the Banner Saga 3, like builds on and intensifies a series of games that has always been like bittersweet at best like there is no unalloyed joy in the banner saga like every time something good happens it's probably because something bad just happened or something bad is just around the corner uh and so by this third game i think what's really impressive is it finishes strong by committing to what it's always been and what like sort of stymied me in places was this expectation that like all right here's the one where we start getting like you know good endings right this is this is where like you know the heroes really come into themselves and save the world and you know redeem uh you know redeem the, the magic party emerald in a lot that of fixes ways. everything 
Yeah, or just like make the grand heroic gesture. Like it wasn't even I was looking for like Deus Ex Machina, but it was more like sure. uh, go full paladin, <laughs> right? And like the game would somehow reward me. But that's not what the banner saga is. And so it started smacking me around basically every time I started playing that way. But that felt good because it was true to itself. It was like, ah, this is this is truly the finale that the ban- Banner Saga should have. Right. Uh, and I think that's an interesting part here is that it may not have given you exactly like what you wanted in, in like sort of a confectionary <laughs> sense where I want, want sort of a sweet, uh, you know, soothing ending. But it gave me what I wanted from a Banner Saga game. And what do you want from Banner Saga? Which, which is, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me that one. What, what what do I yeah. want from a Banner Saga game? Yeah. Uh, my, I, I think I want exactly that. I want this complicated exploration of, like, what is heroic virtue in, mm. like, in a, like, it's not the real world, but, like, the motivations are very realistic. Like, the characters are very grounded. Weights right. of history do not vanish overnight. Like, I'll give you a small spoiler here. Uh, and it's just there's a there's a moment you can have where you can piss off all your giant allies. There's this race called the Varl. They're giants. Um, there are going to be no more of them in the world. They're created by uh, the gods themselves, and sure. like they sprang into existence with the existence of the world. There will never be any more than than there are right now, and so their numbers just dwindle through the years. And there is this moment that you can really piss them off by basically trying to just like give them tough love and like tell them like keep your eye on the big picture and not at all listen to what they're trying to say about like how they're feeling about their place in history and this knowledge of like their own looming extinction and i sort of did the like damn it no we just have to you know for the good of all peoples for the good of existence you know just get with the get with the goddamn program and the reaction that was like you know what you like for all our travels together, you yeah. still don't get it. Yeah. Fuck you. And they left. <laughs> and that was like, that was bad. Dude, that was no. real bad. You just learned to uh, save at that point? Because that seems like a big one to just lose all of your giants. Well, I kept thinking they'd come oh. back. Like, I was like, oh, clever. Clever game. Almost got oh, me. But I'm boy. sure they'll reconcile in like five minutes. Uh, no, no. Not so much. But like, that's kind of what I wanted is that, that you're never going to have that moment of, um, the elves showing up at Helm's Deep. Right. And it's like, all right, it's cool. Everyone's got to think about the greater good here. And the past is the past. Um, even even on the edge of, like, extinction. You know, the past is even, isn't even past. It's still the past. Yeah, in the totally. Saga. Totally. I, so, I mean, one of the things that I'm curious about is, like, the thing that you kind of put together in that review is that, hey, this is totally in line with what the Banner Saga has always been. And I guess I'm, I'm still kind of curious, not even about your preference about this specific game, which it sounds like you think still hits the notes right, but is this a situation where the police are outside oh. my house and they have thoughts about the, bon- mm-hmm. the Banner Saga? No, there's like, I don't, there's an ambulance, it's a whole thing. Anyway. Um, I'm curious if for you in general, when you think about the conclusions of series of like, hey, this is the fourth, third or fourth game in a, in a franchise, they're wrapping up the main story. Do you want them to, to do you want the developers to stick the landing and create what was so magical about the rest of the series for you? Or do you want them to offer something different, which is often a sense of closure or a different perspective on the events that have happened so far or something like that? Yeah, I mean, my answer that's sort of a cheat here is like, I want a, <laughs> I want the ending that's that's 
ultimately I want the ending that's worthy of the story they've been telling, that's worthy sure. of the themes they've been they've been building out. And I think one of the tensions I had in the Banner Saga is I wanted also, in addition to that, a character that would be rewarding for the and an, an ending that would be rewarding for the uh-huh. characters. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, like okay, enough bad things have happened to you know the stars of this lineup. Let's let's give them their happy ending. Um, I also want that, but not really. Like in the end, I want the the delivery on the themes and the story we've been telling right. throughout, and that's where the Banner Saga succeeds. But I think you know. To throw, throw out, like, an example of a game that maybe doesn't stick that landing, a game where this tension isn't resolved, um, something that always struck me about, like, the reaction to Mass Effect 3, mm-hmm. it always seemed to me that, like, that series had always set this expectation of, like, end of the day, y'all are getting out of this alive. Right. And it's, you know, let's have beers aboard the Normandy and continue hanging out together in space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... There, I think there was this tension of, well, I want this good ending for my characters, but I also want it to wrap up the larger overarching story you've been telling. And I think there was a discontinuity in the trajectory the characters have been taking through each game, and then the trajectory the, um, you know, A plot of the entire series was was taking. Did you play it before or after the uh, happier ending was sort of patched in, I guess? Oh, I, I played it. Ages okay. later, uh, well after well after gotcha. the patch came out. Did you? How about this one? Because there's there's like yeah. multiple ways to think about this. Did you play it before, after, with with or without the Citadel mm. DLC? Which also like yeah didn't didn't get the Citadel DLC. Wait, okay, basically, so like that the, the funny the, thing the, was it the Leviathan the Leviathan is the Leviathan DLC offered a lot more perspective on like the history of the Reapers. Just history, like, and, essentially uh, like, filled in like massive plot holes, <laughs> like yep. the story never addressed. Yeah, 100%. I remember at Giant Bomb, uh, when we were debating Game of the Year, there was this divide where none of us were happy with Mass Effect 3 except for Brad Shoemaker <laughs> because he's the only one that right. played it after all the DLC was out. Oh. And his perspective on the story was so radically different because, like, nah, all this shit's explained. And for us, it was like, well, yeah, but in a DLC that came out months after the game and did not make it, it was not a satisfying part of the narrative because it's like, oh, I'll go back before the ending right. and then go fill in these gaps. You know, it was a, a, a strange uh, thing. Which is like, but also his experience of playing that right. game was valid because that was the version he had. Like he couldn't have played it. More in a votes on way. our side, though. So fuck him. Uh, yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> well, so but the the one that the one that's more interesting to me is the Citadel one because that gives you the end of like the 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 rising jumping. Like yeah, we're all in this together because it's long yeah, enough yeah. that so I think the, people like the Leviathan was a like six years lore, ago lore yeah. lore heavy. Go down into the water and explains a bunch of Kill history. Honor, find out who existed before. Before the Reapers were built, like, and it, what it's happened sort of like there. if there was like for people that didn't like Lost, if there was an episode that's like, "Yo, I'm just going to sit in front of this camera and I'm going to explain 15 questions to you." Right, like that's what right. that DLC your did. Core, uh, core, you know, uh, important story story beats that had not been explored previously. Um, the the Citadel DLC was like the opposite of that, which is like super fan servicey. Return to the Citadel, get up to some hijinks with your old buddies, and then wrap it up with a cool party at the at the bar, and everyone gets drunk, and like you you kind of have your big final blowout party before the final confrontation with the Reapers and everything that happens at the end of that game. And a lot of people loved that because it gave them the thing 
Like it, it, it fulfilled that need that the base game did not. The base game goes into that finale with like a conversation with all of your party members and all of your past party members on the way to the whatever the the final run. You know, you get into your your Mako or whatever the the fuck it was and, and go down that hill. But before that, it's like, all right, I'm gonna check in with uh, with Garrus. I'm gonna check in uh, with with Liara and have like the mind meld one more time. I'm gonna you know see all the Krogans together. You know, lined up and I've dealt with their shit with the Salarians, so they're cool now. And like, it was just like okay, this is kind of rote and checkboxy, but with the Citadel DLC, I think a lot of people were able to get that final resolution, or not the resolution, they were able to get that, like, alternate universe, what if all these characters are just super happy, and then the ending that we didn't like just didn't happen. What if this is the end of the <laughs> game? We fucking got there, we had a dope party, the end. Um, and I I appreciate it for the fan service stuff, but it, it always, it, it never really set super well with me because it did feel out of tone for the rest of that game which was about like characters you know dying and the you know the relationships that you had put did push to their brinks finally falling apart um and so i think that's one of the things with 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 mass effect 3 in general is it it pulled triggers that it kind of that it sort of set up in mass effect 1 and 2 um and forced you to make really really hard final choices uh, about the relationship between the Corians and the Geth, between the the relationship between the Salarians and the Krogans, and all that stuff, and sometimes it wasn't satisfying to pull a trigger. Yeah. Like y- you almost wanted the resolution to be deferred because you liked the status quo, which was I know what this universe is, and sometimes because they just didn't stick the landing super well, um, or wanted it to be times, messy they, in some way, as right, opposed to like right, exactly. this happened, it is done now. Yeah, it's all wrapped up. Is that your is that your Morden Morden Solus? He sang a song. It was sad. <laughs> he sang a song. You know, it's it was sad. sad. It's a sad moment. I have a weird relationship with uh, Mass Effect Three. Uh, while we're while we're still on Mass Effect Three, I suppose. Please. In that I haven't I hadn't touched it. You know, I I beat the base game back in 2012 before any of the DLC, before any of the anything, and I haven't touched it since. So my complete experience with that was just the base game. And hearing about Citadel being a fun party and being like, that sounds nice, but, uh-huh. you know, I, I was more or less uh, fine with how it ended. I, I did the synthesis thing. And it was every, Everybody was green. It was fine. Uh, but I had a weird relationship <laughs> with that series because, on one hand, it got more gay as the series went on. Like, one, two, and three, like, became increasingly queer, and that was mm-hmm. awesome. But the games themselves, story-wise, became somewhat less interesting as it went on. So it was like, there was like a bizarre XY correlation between the queerness or like the romance options that you could take and how sort of straightforward the storytelling became. Because that first game is just that amazing, brimming with possibilities, ridiculous sci-fi stuff, incredible world building, janky as hell gameplay. And two is, I think a lot of people feel has sort of a sweet spot gameplay wise, but unless you romance Liara as a lady, there wasn't, you know... Which I did, right. of course, in one of my many, many playthroughs of it. Uh, but then in the third game, it was finally like, oh, it's 2012 now. It's okay to have gay characters. There was a gay dude, and there was a woman that was, like, only romanceable uh, to uh, lady players. And it was like, oh, you've gotten there. But now the game is somewhat less interesting in other ways. And that was a bizarre thing. I guess a weird... Right, there's, like, an inversion there, yeah. right? Which is which is also... Rob, you have a thing. Go yeah. ahead. Well... I mean, to me, like, the analogy is the Banner Saga, and, like, I think originally the Banner Saga might even have been conceived as one game. Mm. Like, Stoic did a series of Kickstarters, and I, I did 
a preview on this game ages ago for PC Gamer, back when this idea was first being pitched. Uh, and I think basically it was like, look, this is how we can this is how we can get across the finish line. But like the way it's conceived, it's it's kind of one story, and that entire story takes place in what would be like the final half of Mass Effect Three, basically, right? Like that, that now the world defining calamity is here. And the story begins there, and it's all these characters that we meet in the middle of this process and coming to terms with the scope of, of what is happening. The Mass Effect series is largely a game about hang, like it's yeah, it's about hanging out with friends, like resolving their personal issues. It's about being a good servant of a of a militarized bureaucracy. <laughs> you love it, yep. yeah, that's uh, it. In a lot of ways, gotta be one. That's yeah, and and so I think. What's what's weird in the third game is that um you know the way it opens is very much like the world's changed forever like literally Shepard starts having these visions the entire game is screaming like your characters are almost they're already in sort of this twilight land between like uh, mortality and death right like they've they've already passed beyond that or at least Shepard has and so now. It, the game tries to turn around and say, like, but it's still Mass Effect, so you can still, like, have relationships and, uh, you know, hang out with your crew and go on adventures. But at this point, like, there's this massive tension between, like, what Mass Effect has always been, which is, like, characters acting as if the world is going to go on. Uh, there's going to be a tomorrow. And then Mass Effect 3, you know, the stakes are very high. The time frame is getting very compressed. Uh, and... They try to have it both ways, and I and I think, I think like, even as someone who played those games, I also wanted it both ways. But mm-hmm. there's no way that's going to really tie together or be like thematically satisfying. I think that's the biggest thing. Do you want to be happy or do you want to be satisfied <laughs> with a lot of this, right? In in how you feel about how things have wrapped up or or how series have wrapped up. And I know there's another. I feel like uh, we're talking about a lot of threes. In series, but I suppose it makes sense. I know Austin, in sort of chatting about this, you had mm. mentioned Dark Souls three, uh, and how you felt totally. about how kind of, how that sort of wrapped up, which I feel like is a bizarre parallel to Mass Effect three uh, in a lot of ways, in which uh, the way fans kind of talk about it uh, in certain ways, but it, it yeah. also kind of remixes elements a little bit, or or sort of like rearranges elements in some interesting ways. And again, I only played three, so. Uh, right. Well, yeah. it's such a different thing because you're not carrying the same character through your yeah. Dark Souls experience. Um, and because instead there's a sort of like the the there's a kind of a meta narrative happening, which is Dark Souls says, hey, here is the way the world is. There is uh, there is there is a fire and that's what keeps everyone alive. Uh, you have a choice as you investigate this fire and fight a bunch of skeletons and and gargoyles and other shit. Alive might be relative in that. Yeah, alive is right. Uh, I didn't look alive after a while. Yeah. (laughs) For a while, the fire kept everybody alive. Uh The fire is dimming. People are not quite alive anymore. And the only way to to keep living is to relight that fucking fire or to let it fade into darkness and move into a new age, uh, and then the age of shadow. And then the second game was like, okay, that happened. At some point distant in the future, 
you know, where things have, this cycle has repeated again and again and again with some variation. And the, the second game's whole thing is just like, hey, there will always to some degree be the scholar who who pushes too far and, and performs, you know, inhuman experiments. Uh, and there will always be the greedy king who, who you know, builds a castle on the backs of, of slaves. There will always be this, you know, like that is the sort of, the sort of like, here are the, the, the Jordan Peterson, like, uh, or, or Hero with a Thousand Faces if we want to get like less terrible about it there are there are the, the kind of Jungian archetypes there are these archetypes in this world in the world of dark souls and they do recur but sometimes they recur slightly differently and so the larger story can come and change over over a long 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 period of time and so going to the third one it's like well okay we know that there's the, been the setup of like here is what the the fiction of the world is you know that there, there is this idea of repetition and uh, repeatability and and kind of um, uh, 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 a kind of a cycle. So what's the third one going to bring to it? And the thing that it ends up trying to do is is both be the sequel that Dark Souls Two was not by literally returning you to familiar places like Anorlando, uh, and and you know having actual specific characters show back up. Not just echoes of those characters, not just someone with a similar name and like the armor is the same, but looking at like some of the bosses where it's like, oh no, that is just this person. Like that is just this person, you know, that has been hurt or has been captured by this other person or whatever. Um, and, and that game ends up having to do something very difficult, which is in a game about an unbreaking cycle in a game in which, you know, historically the game series has been like, oh, there's no way out of this. This is light, light the thing and go into the fucking Age of Shadows. We're going to come back here eventually. At some point, we're going to be back at this moment. That game has to say, no, 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 no. This time, you have to, it has to, this is it. This is the end of it. And the way that I think it does it the best is each of the bosses in that game is effectively a different player character. Um, the bosses in Dark Souls 3 are all former, like, they're all chosen ones also, basically, who failed to do the job. And so, all of the level design, all of the boss design, all of the, like, the, the lore bits you're picking up are basically about other moments in this cycle and the ways in which these characters decided in their last moment, you know what, fuck it, I'm actually not going to go through with this bullshit. I'm not going to sacrifice myself to keep everybody alive. And that ends up being a really a really interesting focal point for thinking through some of those big themes, and also just mechanically speaking, returning to a lot of similar boss fight mechanics, a lot of, uh, of like sorts of spaces where you go through them and you get the sense of deja vu that could only happen in the third game uh, or the, you know, in, in a further game in the series. And for me, it basically did it the right way, which is to say, I left it going like, all right, I don't need a Dark Souls 4. I don't need a Dark Souls 4. Uh, there are parts where I didn't need a Dark Souls 3, but by and large, <laughs> I got through that game and really liked it. Uh, and and came off came out of it the other side feeling like all right this felt like a natural conclusion I felt like that that the narrative space has been explored and that's part of why I'm so excited to see Sekiro because like I'm glad we're not just getting another Dark Souls game I want to see them continue to play with with mechanics and 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 with storytelling device stuff so that is that is my Dark Souls three spiel yeah well I mean that's the, I mean what you're touching on is that so like in other forms of storytelling like books and movies there's story and then there's characters right and right uh i mean we can get a difference between like plot and story i'm not going to go down that rabbit hole and get but let's just say like there's there's plot and then there's characters (laughs) and we'll just like make those two buckets and and often like you can be attracted to a story for like the plot or the premise 
Um, and then you get drawn in by the characters. And then the, the plot is just like, it's just a reason, you know, for, for the characters to go through different things. And you're there for that. And in games, like, you have this additional layer of mechanics, which ties into then plot slash premise and characters. And I think that's where a lot of games get into trouble is where they're trying to balance between these three buckets in which, are, well, are you, are you, maybe you're not even here. Like, for me, I could, uh-huh. g- could not give less of a shit about the plot or the characters of the Souls games. Like, I'm here for the mechanics. Now, yes, they tie in thematically, and there's reasons their designers are thinking that stuff through, but, like, I don't care. Um, and so, uh, like, it, and I think lots of games run into this. Like, uh, look at, like, Bioshock, I think, is a great example of a game uh, in which uh, it's Elon Final Musk's moment. favorite Elon game. Elon Musk's favorite yeah. game yes. about submarines. Yeah. Yep. Uh-huh. Right, so, like, that game has a final boss that's, like, deeply unsatisfying because it's trying to play into a trope about with the, the mechanical build of how games are traditionally made and that like oh you're supposed to go up against a final boss that is a culmination of quote like quote unquote everything you've learned while you've played this game but what that final boss does is like betray like narrative stuff that's happening and the crescendos that's happening in that game like whatever you think of what happens at Bioshock like the way they they structure this final boss like betrays it because they there's this thought that oh mechanically this is what you're supposed to do to satisfy the player on this mechanical level and so it's interesting to watch different games approach that in different ways and the different value sets they put on we're like do the do the plot and the characters only exist in service of the mechanics um do the characters exist in, in service like they switch that and the characters are in service of the mechanics and uh I think games balance that in different ways, and they get lost when, like, like Mass Effect. Like, part of the reason the Citadel was appealing was because, uh, I mean, yes, I guess you could argue it's a status quo thing, but I would actually argue it had more to do with character resolution for people. Like mm. that, that the Citadel allowed them to get the, a character resolution for the story because either the plot resolution wasn't. Uh, particularly good, which is often the case. Most stories get worse. Like, most stories don't get better as they go along. Like, we are often attracted to the premises of things, and then as they go through the motions, as they try and find a way to end, well, we discover that, like, they probably only came up with the beginning and didn't have a satisfying end. Because endings are hard. Like, endings are really, really difficult to do. Um, And so... Uh, you know, I, I think that's why the Citadel was attractive because, like, oh, I get this character resolution because the plot resolution was not very satisfying, and maybe that what that reveals is actually this game was about characters, not about plot, and that by the third one they got really obsessed with the plot and they lost the thread a little bit on the characters. And I think a lot, a lot, of, a lot of stories uh, do that. That's why I like the ending of Lost. The- I think, I think Lost <laughs> ends, I think Lost ends very well for the characters, and I think you can make lots of credible arguments for why the plot doesn't end particularly doesn't well. work so well um the the other thing that games do here and like focusing back in on this notion of mechanics two things like three things really but the two that i want to hit first are one sometimes the mechanics will change over the course of a game to reflect changes in taste both the taste of the developers and the taste of the audience um and and that can be really tough because sometimes the audience really wants that first experience again, right? I think about something, the Bioware games, again, are really good for this, looking at how Mass Effect moves from being this kind of, uh, this game about exploring these planets in Mass Effect 1 and scrolling through text boxes and war- like shooting your way through prefab locations, but mostly just kind of repeating that that cycle in a in a game where shooting is 
a thing you do, but like it is not, it does not feel particularly good. Uh, and then Mass Effect Two, it feels, it starts to feel really good because it's it's kind of biting uh, third person action games at the time. But even looking at something like, or, or even more so, looking at something like Dragon Age, which goes from being something that you could totally play from this isometric, top down, like old school uh, uh, computer RPG style in Dragon Age Origins. To specifically the jump to Dragon Age 2, which ends up having this kind of, I don't want to say button mashy, but it's an action feeling combat with some cooldowns and stuff, really, like, pushed some players away, which is a shame because I actually think that, that in terms of what the focus of that game's story is and the way that those characters are portrayed and the tone of the writing in the game, that switch actually makes a lot of sense. But a game is, is, is for a company like Bioware and for a publisher like EA is a product. And so the reaction ends up being about how the product has changed and failed to like reach the, the, what people liked about the first one. Um, and that can be, that can be really, really tough. Um, and then the, the second thing there is this, is the second part of the, the, of this like they are products uh thing which is sometimes you don't even fucking know if you're gonna get a conclusion or a game could be a conclusion but like mm, is it really when are we gonna get the witcher 4 is it five years is it 10 years because we're gonna get a fourth witcher game uh and then also obviously just like inside of that sometimes a, a developer will have to say like okay this is gonna close the chapter for our development house but then another developer will come in and reopen the book. <laughs> and that makes so many things, or just a, a, one developer will have to end a book that somebody else started. And all of those material like uh, constraints and pressures on, on the development of video games change me, means that they're so much different than like if I sat down to write a, a trilogy, a book trilogy, I would certainly what that final book looks like would be different on the day I finished writing it than on the day I started writing the first one. But games are even way more wild than that even. I, I, the Witcher is an interesting example because I don't. As much as people want another Witcher, The Witcher Three's ending, and especially the epilogue that comes from the Blood and Wine DLC, is far and away one of the most satisfying conclusions. Like it ties up every bow in a way that doesn't feel checklisty. It it's just you end with those characters and go. I mean, okay, yeah, I guess if they made another one, like all right, like I'd, I would. I guess I'd revisit these characters, but you don't. It's like it's very difficult to end a story where you feel like cool. Like, I'm done with this world. Like, I'd like to come back to this world, but I don't right. need to revisit these characters. And, I, like, if you played The Witcher 3 and didn't play the Blood and Wine DLC, I think Witcher 3 ends, like, really well uh, on its own. But the Blood and Wine DLC, with some of the, I guess, epilogue stuff, I would say, for lack of a better term, like, is is incredibly satisfying. Where that world just ends in a way that, and not in, like, a, it blows up, just in a way that's, like, cool. Like, you, this doesn't happen. Part of the reason it feels special is because it's, like, a great set of characters that find themselves to a natural um, finish line, but also, like, you look around and go, oh, right, like, 99% of stories don't find a way to do this. Like, most stories, um, whether they plan to or not, don't end up finding their way to a conclusion that feels like, mm-hmm. ah, like, this is where the characters were supposed to go, and The Witcher 3 absolutely is, like, this rare exception where I, I, I came to the end of it was just, like, so deeply satisfied about where they found a resolution for everyone in the story. One day I'll beat it. I put like 110 hours into that game and I still haven't actually beat I sk- it. I skipped the whole last area, basically, and just oh, said... Oh, wow. Monster contracts. I mean, I didn't skip all of it, but like I, I, I got to the last like major area and was just like, I don't have another 60 yeah. hours. Fair. Not in me. It was just like, I don't have another 60 yeah. hours. And so I just like rushed to the... And like, But I did everything in the two DLCs. Oh, they're so good. The DLC to that game is just... Uh, DLC is underselling it. Expansion is a better word. Yeah. Because 
They're okay. like they're like twenty to thirty hours each. Oh yeah, actually though, I want to ask you a little uh-huh. bit about this. Uh, I I also uh, am uh, not quite finished with the Witcher three. <laughs> Uh, I'm hunting some kind of swamp thing, and uh, I just had that moment where I like I can't, right. I I can't do this right now. I'll come back next week, and that was like three years ago. Anyway, point is, um, that entire structure though, the game is already this like fantasy epic that wraps up this trilogy that's that's all been huge. Then there's an epilogue. I'm curious, like, what like. Why does that epilogue work so well? Because the game has to have its own conclusion that's satisfying. Why does that epilogue for you, like, sort of see off the series and provide, like, a bring that entire thing to appear? Because it's, it's, well, one, the DLC is not really pitched as an epilogue. There's just some stuff that, like, ends up tying into the, the main mm-hmm. story. I think Witcher 3 ends perfectly fine. The reason it works so well is because it provides, it adds to the story in a way that you didn't think you needed. So like that's like it's not, it's not that it's plugging in like gee I wonder what happened sort of stuff. It's more just they add a layer to the story in in a way that like I, like like that you di- didn't feel like you needed like 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 it's less satisfying. Like that's why like the Leviathan stuff with Mass Effect was like really frustrating because it's like I did want that and the game didn't provide it mm-hmm. and then later it just plugged it in and it's a different feeling if you go through that game and it's just there from the beginning because you're not experiencing it in the order that it was like released like it's just a different sort of narrative experience but with the Witcher 3 like its main story ends completely fine like deeply satisfying in the main story and just some of the stuff they add through the DLC makes you just go oh ah like it's just it's it's just it's masterfully done in a way that doesn't undercut and also does not it doesn't it's not necessary is what i'd say all it does is add texture to a story that already ended well uh, in a way that you can appreciate, but did not is not necessarily required reading for for you to come out of The Witcher Three happy and content. I mean, that was the sort of the thing that ended up happening with me and Mass Effect Three is that when I beat that game, I, I didn't necessarily need more. Like I was happy with that conclusion largely because I had made peace with those characters through their individual arcs in the game. Um, and I, I almost didn't want to belabor it anymore. And I think maybe that's just cause I was playing that character, the character, the version of Shepard I was playing was like, you know, the last thing I want is to hang out with people. <laughs> and honestly, I don't care about the fish that came before the Reapers. Um, oh. So reading the information was cool. Like I, I enjoyed getting the information. I didn't ever go back and play the Leviathan. I watched those, yeah. that DLC, yep. I, we, like yep, obviously, <laughs> uh, but but the but the I left that with those feelings. I did feel satisfied, and that ends up being a really difficult and weird thing because you end up having like I've all. It's a hard conversation to have when someone is like, "I didn't like how this thing ended," and you're like, "I did." Like, there's no that's you're at cross paths. Like, I'm never going to convince someone that they did that they had a good time with Mass Effect Three. They didn't. <laughs> Like I, and I don't need. I shouldn't have to feel defensive about my own experience. It's more than packing why, like right, like that's when yes, I talk about like, the difference exactly between it. like character resolution yes. and plot resolution, and seeing people's reactions to things like mm-hmm. the Citadel and the Levi- Leviathan DLC, right? Because like those are fulfilling different needs that people bring to a story, right. and in the same way that we talk about. Uh, like you know, the classic example people say like, "Oh, the shotgun's overpowered." It's like, well, actually, like the pistol is underpowered, right? Like that's how game balance works. Like, because right. people have a difficult time articulating w- how they feel about a thing, and they express that in the bluntest way possible. And I think that's also true for 
like storytelling, right? Like you can say like, oh, I didn't fulfill, feel fulfilled because of X, but it actually may turn out it's because of Y and you just didn't realize that. Now, then that's not to say had they filled in that gap that suddenly you'd be satisfied. Maybe, maybe you wouldn't, but I think, um, you know, the reaction to Mass Effect 3's ending and, and, and all sorts of other endings, you know, I think the reasons people aren't satisfied, they may not necessarily even be able to articulate because right. that stuff um, both requires like a like a, a thorough understanding of like how narrative work and then also because um, I mean you shouldn't necessarily need to under, like if the game doesn't satisfy you the game doesn't satisfy you right like right. just because 100%. you don't, just because you can't pull apart where things uh, didn't work is is not your fault that's you know that's the the, the game's uh, fault um, or the storytelling to a large degree but I think sometimes like it is a little it is worth un- trying to understand why something was dissatisfying, even if that doesn't necessarily allow you to fix it or, or address it. And that was the weird part about the whole Bioware situation, or Mass Effect situation, was because it was one of the rare instances where they said, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, like, what can, yeah. what, what can how can, how can we fix this? Um, which I, I was never a fan of. Like, I, I, I like, if you, ma- if you thought you made a mistake, stick by the mistake, I guess. Um, right, and like, um, unless they stumbled into that conclusion somehow, which I cannot imagine, I, you know, there is, uh, if you work in a creative field, whether that is writing music or, or writing fiction or, or writing journalism, right? Like, whatever that is, making a painting, the decision to end something, like, all right, this is done, is always a subjective one. There is never a meter that finishes, you're like, oh, that's it, I did it, it's done 100%, I can stop editing this now, I can stop adding to this, I can stop trying to trim it. It's always a, like, to some degree, arbitrary decision. You can always edit one sentence more, or, or you know, write one more sentence, uh, write one sentence more, or, or remove one more, right? That's always a thing you can do. But... I my understanding of game development is such that they knew what the end of that game was for a long time before it went fucking gold. And I I cannot imagine a world in which internally they were like this is a thing I'm fully not happy with as it is without having already, you know, ad- addressed that early on in production. And so I definitely am this of the of the mind of just like listen, y'all shipped this thing. Stand by the work. Stand by your writing team. Like, I don't know. Maybe, I'm, maybe, maybe, Rob, you just raised your hand. You may have some some differences there. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved. You've researched. And you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need. Whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. No, I just, I was, I was wondering if just the nature of video games also makes endings more fraught because you know, we identify with the avatar a little more. We we are, you know, we, we inhabit the, the characters, the world a little bit more. Like, is it... Let's let me put this. Um, is it easier to be a passenger on a show? You're just, you're, you're a spectator right. to, you know, how are things going to end for Tony Soprano? People ask this for years. People still discuss it. You know, how did things that turn out for, for Tony Soprano? Uh, but... The point is, at no point are you Tony, right? Right? Like, unless you're a real dumbass <laughs> who's like, "Yeah, Tony's fucking awesome." That's me. I'm like, Tony Soprano over hey. here. Yeah. 
Uh, but you know, unless unless you're you know that kind of point missing asshole. <laughs> Uh, in general, my uncle, like you, by the way, that's the person you described. Excuse me, my uncle I'm sorry, Tony. I'm, I'm sure he's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that uh, fucking he chased the Russian into the fucking woods. That was me. I did that. That was me. You. Like, all right, thanks. <laughs> Great. Uh, but you know, you watch that show, and you're never in control of it, and you get used to like the the ways that universe works, and the the painful decisions characters make, and the the bad way, ways things turn out. Um, and it's a little different in games because in general, this is a medium about like, you know, if you play well, if you make the right calls, uh, you know, you'll, you'll beat the game, you'll win in the end. And a lot of times, like even in a branching narrative game, there's a good ending, right? Like go back and maybe make some different choices and, and you'll get there eventually. You didn't get the drop on level six. You have to get that good drop and that'll open up the true ending. (laughs) Right, and does that make it a little more fraught right. to do that thing which a creator has to do, which is to say, like, look, this is the ending of the story. This is this is how this thing is winding down. When your audience has a completely different relationship to the thing than in any other medium. And that's when the Animorphs author can come in and write a letter that's <laughs> like, you didn't fucking get it, that's God. your problem. Idiot. God, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People should go back and, and listen to that episode of uh, Hot Mike Mornings that we released in the feed, because in that episode, we talked about this amazing letter that Kay Applegate wrote about the end of the Animorphs book series. Patrick's eyes are yep. all the way wide. Like, the end of that the, that book series goes some dark places in terms of, like, fighting genocidal aliens and people, like, kids dying in war. It's about yeah, war. So she, of course. Everything yeah. ends that that's, way. That's why I read that series. <laughs> yeah is that yeah of course uh and so after she released the final book people were like hey this is dark why is this couple split apart forever why did this kid die why is this one like wounded forever like endlessly tormented by the decision he made in war and so she wrote this like response was like yeah dog that's war war is terrible and like it ends with this amazing call to call to voting action where it's like hey when you're old enough you're going to be able to vote for the people who decided to put other young people into war or not. Like, maybe maybe carry some of these lessons forward about the fact that even when wars are necessary, even when you decided this is this is worth it, it's worth killing people over this, there is always a cost. And then shout-outs to Kay Applegate for that very good letter. Beautiful mic drop. Um, yeah. She's, she's fantastic. The thing that I actually wanted to say there, though, is, like, I definitely, Rob, that perspective definitely does make me think about it differently. Um, I was literally this morning... So it is Friends of the Table finale season. Uh, we're finishing up a big science fantasy season right now. Uh, those episodes come out over the next few weeks. And in order to, to produce those episodes, my producer needs more time. Uh, and so I did a fill-in episode this week where I just like wrote 30 minutes of fiction and, and read that into a microphone. Uh, and one of the responses was like... It, so it was about something... It's about the creation of a machine that can see the future and the way in which the society that built that machine used it to build kind of a military dominance. And in it, uh, in response to it, I had a fan who was like, hey, actually, this makes me rethink about a character from a previous season. I wonder if they helped with building this terrible machine that could predict the future and hurt people. And my immediate reaction was like, no, I would never do that to that player. That player would have had to have collaborated with me to decide that they wanted to become a villain if that's the thing that they wanted to do. And so suddenly I, I, I totally do get that point that you're making, Rob, which is like as a creator who also has a player, I do genuinely think that I have a responsibility to think about the desires of the players and to think 
especially about the kind of no-go zones, the way the places in which I have decided to defer and let their agency carry forward. That said, I think video games are a lot different than tabletop games, where my tabletop game player could say, like, no, my character would, like, leave forever and get in a spaceship and go to a different planet before ever helping with that and run, you know, be on the run for the rest of his life. Whereas in Mass Effect, there's a limited number of options, and you as the the writing staff have the ability to shape that. Um, And I think it's about having an informed – making informed choices around what those things – what those options can actually look like so that you think you are at the very least reflecting the all like the 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 spectrum of, of desires by that that your players might have i, I think there's well, that's what the oh, oh go, go ahead. ahead no you go no, danielle, danielle you all have right. a thing. uh the only thing i was going to say was there's also the issue of marketing here and the way that fans treat something and the way mm-hmm. obviously when we're talking about mass effect 3 the way that went down wasn't awesome i mean in 2012 we still thought it was really shocking when there was a hate campaign uh, towards the creators <laughs> of a game, which wow, uh, imagine that, right? Like that was it was eye opening and shocking when that shocking when that God, happened. Was that really twenty twelve? That was twenty twelve. Six years huh? ago, right? Like yeah. uh-huh. <laughs> feels like twenty six years ago. Uh, but in a lot of ways, uh, the video game industry and and there's there's a lot of stuff around this, of course. But the industry has absolutely played into that. Oh, empower the players. Now you're playing with power. Mm-hmm. Like actually, oh yes, you should be empowered. You should be empowered. Which speaks directly to what you were saying earlier, Rob, about. Uh, you know, if there's a major difference between a lot of other pieces of fiction or types of fiction and games, because this audience has specifically been told through marketing for 30 odd years, uh, more than 30 years, I suppose, at this point, almost 40 years, uh, that like you're in control. And that's like a, that's a selling point, uh, which I think feeds really directly into that, into some of these feelings and into some of that tension into how it's so hard for creators now to actually say, like, no, I'm putting my foot down at K.A. Applegate, you know, like put it put it out there. Right. This is about war. Um, and instead kind of make the happy ending or make the sort of fan fiction or fan friendly uh, ending or, or pieces around the ending like that. Go ahead. Patrick. Well, I think that's, yeah. it, you know, Mass Effect, I think part of the criticism of, of that ending was uh, like, you know, they sold, oh, you know, infinite choices equals infinite outcomes. And, you know, as it turns out, it like funnels into like three, uh, maybe it was a four by the time they passed Three, it. it's three. Three, that's, three oh, at the beginning. No, it's three. Yeah. It's three. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, regardless. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and part of, I think the, the mistake they made was, uh, it was probably they had much grander ambitions early on and then, you know, realized as they hit to the conclusion, like, oh, actually, like, we have to start funneling uh, these these choices in a way. Like, we want to, you know, as you mentioned, Daniel, like, empower the player, like, really engage with their choices and have consequences. And that, that absolutely happens throughout the series. But in the ending, it all kind of funnels into, like, the it's part of the presentation, right? It's like the presentation of three glowing icons for, like, that represent, like, a multitude, you know, you know, a handful of really big decisions, like, you know, dozens of, of medium decisions and, you know, hundreds or thousands of, like, minor decisions, like, that just funnel into three glowing orbs, um, <laughs> or three glowing buttons, as it may be. Um, like, I think I like, you know, the, like, Specifically, the first season of The Walking Dead from Telltale Games, like I think, is a a tre- and the the Telltale Games at their best um, are, are, are a tremendous example of like misdirection in which they present as games that are about player choice when when really like players are only making choices on the margins and you're all being funneled into a very similar ending and yet uh-huh. you feel enormous authorship over what happens along the way. I mean, you're still deciding. Um, a char- a characters who live and die, but ultimately the plot is moving forward 
at you know in the same direction. You're just sort of like rotating in certain pieces um, to change things. And yet, like when I played, like when that season, which is you know one of my favorites, like I felt like I had my version of that story. Even when you go back, you realize like oh, like actually there were only like there wasn't many other ways for this to play out. Like there was just a way it plays out, and then you kind of shuffle a couple things along the way. But I thought what it was very successful at was selling the idea of player choice, but then also making them feel like you did have uh, authorship over this, even if reality, and you looked underneath the hood, and maybe part of the reason it works is because actually they let you go underneath the hood, right? Like, Mm -hmm. the walking, Telltale games are extremely transparent about the choice making, which Mass Effect was not. Like, a lot of that's happening just in the background. Maybe you see the consequences of it in in an abstract sense, um, or, or, you know, if a character lives and dies, but you finish an episode of a Telltale game, and it says, like, here are all the choices you made and the percentage of choices and how players interacted with it, which by lifting the illusion, in some ways it empowers you more because you you know exactly where where in what directions things went because the game is saying these are the directions that you had agency over and that most games don't do that. Most games try to hide that are abstracted away, whereas Telltale is the, the exact opposite, where it's like, nah, like 66% did this, and then only 10% <laughs> did this, you asshole. Um, and I think those are, like, really fascinating ways to approach, like, sort of player empowerment and how that f- plays into, you know, like, narrative fulfillment as they as you reach a conclusion, um, you know, relative to how much the player understands the input they had in the process. Right, like, a thing I think about a lot is that uh, Metal Gear Solid Five story fucking sucks. <laughs> It's yeah. terrible. Well, I mean, you could. Did you, did you hold on? I, you broke up. Did you say five? No. I think you just said Metal Gear Solid. Um, I said five. Mm. I said five because I think a lot of people think four wraps up nicely. I don't necessarily. I don't have strong feelings about that fucking series. There are games one and in three, that I baby. like a lot. They're the only ones that exist. Two and five. Those are my two favorites. I like. Five. I like, one, like, I like the Star one a Trek lot. system, like of Star Trek movies, like you either like the evens yeah. or the odds. Like a. I think it's, it's similar. It's, more, it's, it's with Metal Gear. It's. Uh, are you in like not that three and one don't like play into the lore, but like yeah, they're, sta- but they're standalone sure. in a way that two and four are not. Two uh, and four are so mind fucky weird, yes. like up up their own asses. I like two a lot. Um, I I uh, Dark Souls I, I like two, how five Metal plays Gear Solid Dark Souls. Two. Yeah, hundred percent. Super Mario Kotor Brothers two. two. Are you uh-huh. a Doki? Listen, yeah, I, I yeah I love Doki Doki Dokes. Panic. Yep. Like absolutely, that's what Zelda they call two? me a Doki head yeah. for. I never played Zelda 2. I played Zelda 2 for like three hours. I owned it. And I just could never wrap my head around oh, yeah. it as a little kid. I was kid. the same way. All right. Uh, I, I wish I had. I bet I would have loved it. Um, <laughs> but uh, but but Metal Gear Solid 5 is an, is an instance, or even Metal Gear Solid 4, but I think most people came away from 4 feeling like it stuck the landing really well. But a lot of people played 5 and were like, man, this is a pretty good game. This is a fucking terrible way to end this series. <laughs> uh, but no one, and yet, and yet, there was not this outrage that was like, Kojima, before you leave Konami, fix this. Fix it. Make, where's the, I mean, there were people who believed there was a secret seventh ending in that game. Well, there, but they're also, but they dug up and found unfinished cutscenes, right? In they the game? They did find, they found They found like an unfinished of, mission that like actually one was related to the ending, yes. right? Well, and then that made them think that also there was a secret, that that was going to start playing under certain conditions. Right. If you looked in the sun the right way, it was ridiculous. Or like the, was, the, the, the nuclear metagame that was going on, like, oh, because actually there right. wasn't a secret cutscene that unlocked if you got yes. Every player, every player to abandon player nukes. Dis- disarm their nukes, there was a secret cutscene, 100%. But like part of that ended up feeling like the other stuff that happened with Mass Effect 3, which was the indoctrination theory response 
Do y'all remember oh, the indoctrination yeah. theory? None of it happened, Rob. Don't give me that look. Yeah. Sovereign, or it couldn't have been Sovereign, because Sovereign was long out of the picture. But a, a Reaper indoctrinated Shepard, and none of that stuff happens at the end. Mm. And it was just, like, page after page after page about how, like, actually this ending is good because X, Y, Z, because secretly it's not the ending at all. And I'm all for fan theories. But, like, my point is that sort of theory theorizing happened with Metal Gear Solid Five. but what didn't happen was, like, a letter-writing campaign <laughs> that forced Konami to release DLC to fix that story. Because there's only 300 that actually people incomplete who actually... Story. No, right. More. That's true. <laughs> no. I, I, right? Or who have gotten gotten to hours eighty of that game? I, uh, I think that is something specific to do with people's relationship with yeah. Hideo Kojima yes. as, as 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 oh, a I, not as an author but as an auteur. Like you know, like he is right. he is given so much rope over like the shitty things that he does in his storytelling. True. Like I, I I like a lot of the stuff. Words that, and deeds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a whole separate wow. <laughs> how it treats women is a whole but separate no, it's, category it's, it's not because I think it's the same thing so. of like, oh it is because it's, it's like oh it'll be explained like there's a be narrative justification a for these titties right these right. titties have a reason behind them god damn it if you don't understand that it's because you're too <laughs> small brain to understand okay? Kojima, Kojima sensei's uh, uh, brilliance right <laughs> only like Rick that, and Morty fans will understand <laughs> oh god <laughs> Why quiet has titty out Rob, but like that is but I guess my point really quick before before is just like does the do what we for a long time i'm like i'm a big person who pushes back against the auteur theory shit of like and yes. i think even kojima does in that like if you look at Metal Gear solid 5 i've said this before but every time you launch a mission it says the name it does say kojima's name if he's involved in that mission but it also says the name of the person who designed that given mission or who wrote the, the, the dialogue it's an in audience that mission. and media thing we have perpetuated the kojima totally like, totally totally and but but so like maybe i'll push back at myself a little bit which is like imagine if we treated more people in games like creators the way we do in other media forms. What if we did know then how many the average person who goes to a GameStop and buys a game once a month, once a month, which is not rare, right? Which is like, hey, I get a paycheck. 50% of the time if I get paid biweekly, I'm going to go get a game. Um, even someone who, who buys 40 games a year or 50 games a year, how many people do they know in art teams? How many game directors do they know? How many names of producers do they know? 10? You know, 12, and some of those are like Sid Meier, which is like, you tell me the last time Sid Meier made a game. Because it's probably Starships, and I I reviewed that before I was even at Giant Bob. But like, I still know that name because it's a brand name. Uh, But we don't do that in this industry. We don't have, we don't, and because of that, because we think of these things as products that appear on shelves instead of like the creative work of a team or or the creative work, even of an auteur, whatever you want to, however you want to tackle that part of it, you... People just say, no, change it, fix it. Hey, uh, waiter, excuse me. Mass Effect, it, uh, I asked for Mass Effect 3 to be well done, and this is definitely medium rare. Can you fix it? And Gross, waiter, you don't get things well done. Who is this person? I, agreed. Oh. Agre- Donald Trump hates Mass Effect 3. Oh, <laughs> um, oh it tracks. And that's the thing. Yeah. Is that like... Wait, is this you, all an indoctrination? Like, did none of this happen after November 6th? None of this is none of this occurred? <laughs> if you, that's what Robert Mueller is going to do. He's going to oh. break us out of the indoctrination theory. <laughs> oh. How do you say indoctrination theory in Russian? That's the... <laughs> that's what... <laughs> hashtag the resistance told me. Um, Sovereign has compromat on Donald Trump. Oh. Uh, that um, was in the no, Leviathan DLC. That was yeah, in the DLC. It was but under the, there. My bigger point is just like, yo, we need to treat people who make games as people who make creative decisions. And not just like 
a robot that spits out uh, uh, an order for you that can be recooked. And that's not saying things can't be wrong. Rob, sorry. Well, and this, this ties into some of what we were talking about when we were talking about the arena net situation, which is that I think in general among major publishers, but like especially among like publishers in like heavily represented in like English speaking markets, right? Uh-huh. Like uh, there is this, Again, like, power to the players. Like, we just, you know, we're here to serve you. Like, there's this dystopian uh, quote from, I think it was Jade Raymond recently, talking about what what uh, her, ne- her next project is. And she, you know, this was over at PC Games End. The quote they sort of sign off with is uh, her saying, one of the things we're really thinking about is, instead of a framework to hand off the keys to professional teams, can we design a framework where it can be handed off to the fans? Oh. And, like... That's, you know, I don't know what the full context of that quote, but I, but I think the fact that that is something that, uh, you know, a, a, a uh, you know, leading stakeholder feels free to say, right, is really revealing about how a lot of, uh, you know, how publishers are starting to regard the relationship with players, mm-hmm. and how they are also conditioning players to regard their relationship with the works. Right. There's this weird. I think in a, in a way, Kojima is kind of this, um, like this legacy of like the EGM era of like designers were. It wasn't just you know it set aside auteur figures. Uh, designers were like almost aspirational figures, right? Uh-huh. Particularly Japanese designers, right? Like there was there was a bit of uh, you know exoticization of yes, the Japanese 100%. games industry, but in but also there was just like linguistically and geographically a remoteness from their English speaking fans. Uh, it's why like. Kamiya can just tell people, like, go fuck yourself. Yep. And people are like, oh my goodness, Senpai noticed He's, me. He blocked me. Yeah. I made and it. And, like, people love that shit. And they will grant that, they will grant that respect, uh, they will they will grant that enjoyment to, uh, you know, Japanese designers of a certain generation, right? Uh, but they won't apply it to people making games today like in europe or the united states right there it's hey i ordered a happy ending for mass effect where the fuck is it like that's kind of that, also die in a that's fire another yeah right but then also like where Kamiya can turn around and be like you know what fuck off the general strategy in like you know western markets is to turn around and be like immediately must placate placate mm-hmm. the children right like okay you know we we're we're, we're listening to you and we're just we're, we're just so struck by your passion uh and oh the new york Times editorial uh, board is here i didn't i didn't know uh, <laughs> and we're going and we're going to give you the ending that you know fan you know that, that is fans deserve of fans and shit. yeah exactly exactly and i think that is this weird This weird uh, artifact of maybe not having enough regard for games as a creative field with people making, like, authoritative creative decisions, for better or worse. Uh, That's their right. And it doesn't seem like that right is granted to uh, a lot of uh, teams and publishers these days. Publishers increasingly, like, deny that right exists. Yeah. Right. It's it's a tough thing because I do want to say that there is 
games are, are complicated for other reasons, which is like, I'm glad that No Man's Sky is continuing to be patched until it's become a better game. I, I think that, e and even beyond the feature ads, it's important that certain, like, bugs get fixed. This is not a medium where right now, given the, the moment that we're in with, like, you know, patches and, and the internet, a game ships and that's it. It's done 100%. Like, there can be typos in visual novels, and those should be those are able to be fixed. You may as well fix them, right? I'm not saying that that everything should just come out and that's it. You should never touch it again. But I do. It is it is important, I think, as a creator to decide where you draw the line. Um, as a as an editor, I know that like I'm happy to go back into a story and change something to make it factually correct if something if we make a fuck up we if we say that a game is coming out on august 27th and it's actually coming out on august 22nd and we misheard it when we were in a busy room and we wrote the wrong one yeah fix it fix the thing right but if rob says that you know i finally played dark souls 2 and it's the worst one and boy is that bad i'm never gonna be like rob go back in and change it you have to say it's the good one you have to uh and i don't care how many fans say that rob is wrong about that rob is right about that for rob it was the worst one for me on the other hand who understands the the depth and nuance of the series i like how you put this on rob like, yep. as opposed to... Because Rob hasn't played it already. I already know how you feel. <laughs> and to quote uh, Sean Murray, I don't care what you think, Patrick. Wow. Um, <laughs> wow. Um, so, but, so yeah, I think that... But I, but I do <sighs> think that this is, like, a, a thing that we're going to have to continue to return to and think about. And obviously, it does happen in other media. Like, there are director's cuts of films. There are, you know, how many versions of, of Wolves uh, are out? How many did Kanye fix? Kanye fixed a lot of Wolves at this point. Danielle. Yeah, I, there's something about this, though, that uh, really, really reeks of, you know, the first decade of the 2000s when I was in grad school, I was reading all about transmedia and how wonderful and how many possibilities there were for it because we could have conversations between creators and, you know, fans of a work or, or, or whatever. And there's this very sort of bright-eyed, bushy-tailed feeling about the, this ability to have conversations. And, of course, you can go back... There's a lot of media theory that goes back and says that, no, people don't just watch something there. They are always in conversation with something. But this was uh -huh. literally with the advent of social media, people could be in conversation with creators. And this is going to be this wonderful thing that would help push mediums forward. It would help push everything forward because people could, could really be a part of this. Everybody could be a part of the whole thing. And it seems to me, and maybe this is just me being depressed in August of 2018, but it seems to me that there has been a massive disconnect between having a conversation with between fans and creators and an angry mob running around with pitchforks setting mm -hmm. the creators on fire. Uh, so again, I don't, I don't know how much of this is my own bias, but it really feels like uh, the rhetoric is, is supposed to be this beautiful conversation, this beautiful creative collaborative process between creators and fans and, and fan creators and, and fan works and works of, of, of fan fiction and fan art and all this other good stuff. Uh, it just feels like that conversation isn't really happening. The biggest properties are owned by massive corporations who do shut those things down. And also, a lot of fans feel very entitled to go on hate campaigns towards creators. So it feels like there's a breakdown on both sides of that. Right. 
I do think that that stuff does happen sometimes. You look at something like Overwatch, which has a huge amount of fan work that goes into maintaining the popularity of that game through fan art, through fan fiction, through fan comics, through a million and a half things, even just conversations on on social media that fill in the gaps of that world uh, and that universe. Uh, You know, and of course, the the fans who, who, you know, play uh, competitively and who release YouTube videos and who stream so that even if I'm too tired to play the game, I can watch the game and keep it at the forefront of my mind. Like, corporations have gotten very good at capturing fan activity and fan labor, yeah. right? Like, that is not a... that is and, and yes, certain ones do shut it down. Like, when you're making a Metroid game, uh, Nintendo's gonna be like, nah, don't do that, you know? Um, and so there are there are obviously lines there, so I, I, I definitely see your... get, get your point there. Uh, but, I, but I do also think that there is a... There is another dystopic world, which is like the one where the only fan work, the only fan response that's allowed is the one that is like, rah, rah, look at our fan art. Rah, rah, look at my, look at how much this. Corporations are going to actually accept and highlight. So maybe we're in that dystopic vision. Well, we're in the worst of worst, the worst of both, right? Which is like, we are getting the world in which the stuff that's, the stuff that bubbles up is either hate mobs or like celebrationist. And the stuff that is like, hey, I'm in the middle oh no the woke gamer logged on they're not going to attract that national reviewer (laughs) that's 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 forever that's who you are now Uh, Uh, one thing that you know talking about this breakdown of fan relationships and uh sort of the corporate landscape to a degree is this exacerbated by the fact that all culture media culture these days takes place in this really restrictive world of intellectual property control yeah. uh where like there is like something that makes it extra fraught is this knowledge that like once a series ends once once you know a corporation is done with a trilogy or something that's it you're not going to see those characters again the the you know this the the door is closed the book is closed what you don't have is like Consider Sherlock Holmes. Yes. Right? That series 100%. ends, like, he goes off to be a bee. Like, he, he, he fucks off. He's going he's gonna to go study the bee. Spoilers. That's what he's going to do. Oh, hey. And <laughs> from there, people are free to do whatever the fuck they want with Sherlock Thank Holmes. Thank God. Including con- completely <laughs> resituate him, recontextualize him, gender swap, whatever. It doesn't matter. Sherlock Holmes, whatever that means to you, you can make it. You can certainly make something better than Stephen Moffat did. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but... That's unusual because Holmes is one of the last like super popular like worldwide famous character, Mister Worldwide, uh, Mister Worldwide, like, famous, AKA Sherlock characters. Holmes, right? Before you start having these really aggressive IP regimes put in place, so that Dale Watson, <laughs> sorry, yeah. continue. Yeah, so like I, I think it's it's I think that's another thing that sort of intensifies this is that. Where people do, part of wanting control is also wanting to see your ideas reflected for the series. Art is inspiring. Like, it is impossible to, like, see a cool story or a new universe and not think, like, oh, man, what would I do with that? But now you can't. Right. Only Only the company can. This is not like a triple bind, right? Because on one hand, yes, I want to live in the world where Batman is Sherlock Holmes, which I can live in if I'm DC because Sherlock Holmes is out of is out of uh, trade out of copyright, so I can just make Batman Sherlock Holmes. But I literally mean I want Batman to be as usable as Sherlock mm-hmm. Holmes is, right? Think about all the amazing Batman stories there would be. Think about all the amazing Star Wars movies that people could make or Star Wars comics people could make if Star Wars would ever come out of of copyright. Well, Batman it won't and Elon happen. Musk. 
are, are going right. to rescue. Our, yeah, exactly. Oh my yeah. god. Well, I take it all back now. Get rid of it. Burn it there, all down. There is an exception to this, though. Uh, like, so Valve is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, like in terms of like talking with this, the original beginning of this is like. You know the the lack of satisfaction or, right, or how sure. stories end. Like right. the way the Half Life series may or may not have ended through the a writer like uh, publishing a blog in which you basically just have to swap out some character names and you get resolution to an episode of Half Life. You know, two episode three that people have been waiting you know more than a decade for. Like that's a fascinating like once in a lifetime sort of way for a story to come to a conclusion and to give closure to or some form of closure to fans that have been seeking. That's what they mm-hmm. at, at a certain point. It's not that they even wanted a good game they just wanted they to just fucking want. know what happened yeah. at an end of a thing in which you, you made an explicit promise like that you were going to to do this thing and you didn't and then second uh valve for i have all sorts of problem with the steam as a platform and, and yep. things that valve does as a company but one of the things that i like that they do is that they allow fans to create their own fan fiction uh for portal for half-life like let's remember like there's a whole half-life remake like that they put up on their store and said yo just try and you know, just charge money for it. Like, do whatever you want. Like, yeah. they they outright endorse and encourage fan fiction and for fans to profit off of that fan fiction, even in the instance of, like, a Half-Life remake in which you would imagine for a normal company, they'd be saying, yo, keep that in your back pocket because what if we just, like, remake that game and make a bunch of money off it? And Valve said, essentially, they're like, well, if we're going to do it, we would do it right and, like, just go do it. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? Like, or just, either, yeah. or they're indifferent, right? Like, if right. we're going to we'll, go, do it, we'll go do it. But you guys can go, you know, have fun doing it yourself. And not only that, like, crucially different than every other, I would say probably every other IP holder, like, you can make money off of it too. Right. And not only can you make money off of it, you can put it on our platform. <laughs> and the, the smart thing is, like, we'll make money off of you making money because right. we get a of cut, course. right? And so right. Um, there's a cynical way to look at that, but I, I, I think it is a net positive um, to, in, in, it's part of the reason people are so passionate about Val's storytelling despite the fact that they have done so little to encourage it is because they left the door open for fans to fill in those gaps and do it themselves and rather than squashing that they said hey actually come in and do it make some money and we're actually not only going to be okay with it we're going to endorse it which is a, a a tacitly different approach than basically every other company out there so i to to, to continue that though like the thing that i want to add is that while I absolutely am happy about that, and there's actually not a thing about Valve specifically, uh, I'm happy that in that case, fan creators can get paid and should be allowed to get paid, and I want that world to exist. I also want the world to exist in which creative work does not need to be understood only in terms of profit motive. And that fan fiction and fan work, whether that's creating art or creating short stories or doing fan films, whatever that is... uh, can be understood to be an end of itself and where created where creativity of that sort is lauded after our you know early 20s at which time many of us are told to like put the toys away and focus on your career right that like i don't know outside of outside of fandom I don't know many people who write for fun the way they used to, right? Like, oh, I used to write stories in high school, and I stopped doing that because I couldn't. I just couldn't get any. I couldn't get paid, and part of that is reflects the the modern condition in which the time that you have is either working or recovering, so that you can go back to work and do your job, take care of um, family, etc. The whole totally, whole totally. Yeah. But you can you can unpack all of this this stuff around creative work, around the the gendering of that sort of stuff. The, like the gendering of hobbies is such a fucking thing. 
in, into a point where there was a different world in which I stayed a trademark researcher and stopped writing because even though I have in my head the best version of the Mass Effect ending, you know, I'm not going to write it. That's not my, that's not, I'm not going get, to get paid for it. So even though I could write something that would make me feel really good, I'm not going to sit down and do that. And I wish we lived in a world that, one, yes, allowed people to just make the Mass Effect 3 ending that they dreamt of and sold it to people. And that would be really cool to see. But also one in which more people felt um, empowered to write and to write their own stuff, to make their own fan works and be feel that that was satisfying. Not not because you shouldn't care about the other people's work and that you should be satisfied by everything put in front of you, but simply because that is an avenue for resolution that is not often made available to us because the skills to, to work in those spaces aren't necessarily trained and also because they're actually denigrated uh, pretty openly pretty much all the time. Like, this reads like fanfic is a fucking insult and... Like, if you actually unpack it, like, this reads like something someone wrote because they were in a, in a tight community and because it gave them some feelings of self-care and control. Like, oh, cool, dope, thanks, yeah, nice insult, bro. Yeah, what a terrible thing, right. <laughs> what a terrible thing. So, like, I, those are, that is my, my only complication to that is I want to live in a world in which fans can make stuff and get paid for it and also the world in which they should feel free to make stuff just for them. And that needs to be, that's allowed to be okay and isn't denigrated. Because they could feed their families just, just because. Through, yeah. right, yeah. Ideally, because we live in, in luxury space communism, where all creative labor is, is in fact, uh, is something you do out of the joy of the work, right? But we don't live there yet, so pay your fucking artist. There you go. <sighs> uh, really quick, the last thing I wanted to add on this is I actually just went back and read the actual announcement for the Mass Effect 3 extended cut, and the language in it is so interesting to me. Yeah. Um, through additional cinematic sequences and epilogue scenes, the Mass Effect 3 extended cut will give fans seeking further clarity to the ending of Mass Effect 3 deeper insights into how their personal journey concludes. I'm going to like jump around a little bit. This is coming from Dr. Ray. Uh, uh, he says, We are all incredibly proud of Mass Effect 3 and the work done by Casey Hudson and his team. Since launch, we've had time to listen to the feedback from our most passionate fans, oh. and we are responding. With the Mass Effect 3 extended cut, we think we've struck a good balance in delivering the answers the players are looking for while maintaining the team's artistic vision for the end of the story arc of the Mass Effect universe. Casey Hudson, executive producer of the Mass Effect series, added... We have reprioritized our post-launch development efforts to provide fans who want more closure with even more context and clarity to the ending of a game in a way that will feel more personalized for each player. How many personals uh, just, and clarities were in there? Lots of lots of personal clarity, finally. Draw no conclusions that I'm about to leave this fucking interface <laughs> industry and the company I founded the uh, minute I put this thing to bed. Signed, Dr. Signed, Dr. Ray. Dr. Gotta get out of here. Gotta go. Did Dr. Ray go to do the beer? Was Dr. Ray the beer I one? I think so. I Dr. Ray was beer. If I, do, if I go to Google and type in the beer doctor, <laughs> what's it going to get me? Mm, probably not Dr. Probably. Ray, but like if you put Bioware in there too, you're going yeah, to get yeah, Dr. Yeah. Ray. Anyway, I just think it's fascinating to look back at that specific use of language around passion, around even the way Casey kind of hedges a mm. little bit. Um, you can kind of, there's a, there's a language there. There's a, there's a tone written into those words uh, that is, that is notable i'd say Ugh. yeah no i typed in the beer doctor this none of this shit is mass effect no. No, gotta, gotta get bioware in there I think. yeah i thought google was supposed to read my brain now or whatever yeah it's not know? perfect yeah give that one two years don't worry 2020 read your brain and uh sells dr. you oh, was zeshuk about zeshuk was the uh yeah dr greg is the beer doctor oh so dr. sorry ray dr ray was, what was he into just not beer i guess oh, that's fine 
doctoring. Strange. I <laughs> being a doctor. That's that's why they both had to leave. Right. There was the 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 split. It's a hell of a career move, but uh, you know, I don't I don't I don't blame anybody for, for that. Um, I was gonna uh, actually yeah. go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no, no. I was uh, I was going to ask the one kind of question I've been mulling around in my head, and it's a simple one. Uh, just as we've been having this conversation, uh, it's not about bad endings that ruin something wonderful, because I think we all have a, a hundred of those. But if any of you have ever experienced something that actually genuinely in, in the ending or the ending arc of something actually recontextualized something for you and made it more interesting or more satisfying as a whole. And I'll broaden it out because I, I, I can't think of a game specifically, but I think I might have this <laughs> with the leftovers, but I know that's a fraught fraught territory for uh let's not go there yeah it's fine patrick you didn't like it you didn't like the end of it no i I loved it it's one of the greatest shows ever made oh there's a there's a great season and a great ending (laughs) all right i'm sorry i'm sorry i did it i did it to me i did it to myself uh so i am i am literally a sucker like look you want to give me a good ending just circular structure like, it doesn't even matter if it makes sense. <laughs> Just at the end, have it wind back so that yeah. in some way, like, the theme repeats or is shown to have repeated in the past. Like, I mean, shit. Like, I remember, like, I don't know. Like, I'm still not sure whether Herodotus really has a good ending to the saga of the Greeks and the Persians. Because it ends with a completely nonsensical detour into a conversation that feels like we would have heard about when we first talked but about King didn't. Cyrus. Yeah, but uh-huh. we totally didn't. And now suddenly he's like, you know what we shouldn't do is become an empire. We should just hang out here in the desert and remain free and poor. Uh, you know, that th- doesn't make sense, but like, it's a beautiful ending. That's my favorite type of ending. It, yeah, like, but, like, give me that. I, Godfather 2. Well, all of my favorites are the... All of my favorites are the, the camera moves from... The, the cycle or moves from the thing to some bullshit in the desert that ha- is not connected in any way and is like a standalone parable. Uh, and often that's in an essays, it's in academic essays, and often my favorites are the ones where they're being written in the 1930s, and it's the whole essay will be about thing A, and in the final five pages it's like, oh, this whole essay I've been writing is actually about fascism, isn't it? We should do something about that. Uh, and, and that nice. comes up in, in fiction pretty often also, where you end up getting this like last-second meditation on something in, the, in, in the, the rest of the fictional world as denouement. And I, I, I'm trying to think of something that pops into my mind for that. Or the other, the other real problem is the endings that I love are for things that never finish. Top three TV endings of all time. Deadwood, Carnival... And uh, uh, wow, fast. I haven't watched Carnival, but I've avoided it specifically because I've oh, I've been I've been told I'll just get angry at the end. You'll of get it. so angry, Patrick. You'll be furious. <laughs> so I'm just not gonna. I just I, despite the fact that everything about that show sounds extremely you would my love shit. Love Carnival, right? You would I just love avoid. It. I watched the pilot and went no more. I just wa- <laughs> I just walked away. It's really good. Um, and uh, and uh, Fast Lane, a TV show that only I love. Uh, it isn't. It is a uh, a Mick G joint. And You've talked about Fastlane before. I have. Don't and act like ends, you haven't brought this up. This it ends the, the worst possible way. It ends right in the middle of, of like, someone's kidnapped. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. It's fantastic. Um, and it's, and it's, I like ending things in the middle. It's why I like the Sopranos ending, actually. It's also that. It's like, okay, this. But that's intentional, right? Like, that's totally, a creative totally, choice but that's to, why I'd to, like to that leave a la- the lack of closure the, yes, the, it's it's a response to the way endings are traditionally done. A hundred percent. That's it why it doesn't have closure. I think it has closure. I think it has closure. Yeah, I, mean, I do too. Yeah. But the but 
it depends on what you mean by closure. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But, that, but, that, but that's exact. But like, right? Like that exact response is yes. like why it's a, a successful yeah. ending. Satisfying yeah. versus happy. Uh, my favorite happy. kinds of endings are the endings from horror films because they always have to come up with a reason to make a sequel at the very end. <laughs> right. Where's the where's the hand going to come out of the ground? Give it sure. to me. Yeah. Give sure. it to me. Uh, speaking of that, hand I hand over. Yeah. Open his eyes. The end? Question mark. I just watched uh just not it's not a waypoint or anything, but like it it speaks directly to your point right here, Patrick. I just watched Nightmare on Elm Street for the first time in like twenty years. And that, that film, ending the original holds up really it's really well. Really good. And that ending is Something. And then famously, you should, yeah, you uh, the producer wanted one ending, the director wanted another ending, and they, yeah. they sort of weirdly compromised on, like, a bizarre art house-ish eh, kind of something or other. Uh, and, of course, you Freddy should, you comes watch, back. You need, yeah. you need to watch uh, Nightmare on Elm Street uh, 3 uh, and then The New Nightmare. But those are the only three you need to watch, but okay. they are th- one, three... And is it eight? I can't remember. The New Nightmare, the other one that Wes, Wes Craven only directed two of them. The first one, A New Ooh. Nightmare. All right. And The New Nightmare is a, is a is a horror classic. It is it is the pre-scream film that he makes, in which he he makes the pivot to making meta horror commentary, and it's oh, mm. I'm still so angry that he followed me on Twitter and then he died. It's bad oh. that he died, oh. but I was just about to reach out and be like, "Yo, could like oh. I've interviewed John Carpenter for a couple of years, like yeah. we should chat," and then mm, oh. wah wah. Well, that's or the ultimate. Womp womp. <laughs> right here, we just yeah, your had. Your takes really are bad. Shit! <laughs> 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 I just, I feel like that Fuck was you, the ending of this episode. We just had the most satisfying, if not happy, ending, right there on on what happened yep. to you, Patrick. I, uh, thank you. I was gonna do a question, but I feel like that's not. <laughs> that's about no it. No topping that. Yeah, horror, horror directors don't follow me on Twitter. Oh, that's no. it's, it's a bad sign. Jesus. That's its own it's like curse. A, it follows in reverse. We're like. <laughs> Seem like some spicy tweets. <laughs> Don't do it. God. You too will be featured in the National Review. Oh boy! <laughs> if you're boy. lucky, the Daily Wire. Oh, Did the, you get Daily with the Daily Wire. Fucking Wire too. Well, I was sort of in the Daily Wire because they linked Ugh. to the National Review article. So okay, basically, so some Ben Shapiro is writing about me. Is what I'm saying. Oh, can you? Well, he did that tweet recently, right? He didn't he. Was that Shapiro who dragged you in a tweet? No. Or who retweeted you? Who was that? Uh, I think I may have... Someone that Peterson? quote tweeted me may have been... No, it was not no, Peterson. No, Cernovich was the one who... Oh, right, uh, right, Oh, Cernovich. Right. It was Mike Cernovich. It was Mike Cernovich. It was Mike Cernovich. Yeah. One of the nice things about TweetDeck is that you can't see quote tweets. So I don't see a lot of Good. that stuff. Good. Yeah, I don't... I, it's unbelievable that I can use Mike Cernovich and Ben Shapiro because only one of those two <laughs> people has the gorilla mindset. You know, like... <laughs> fuck. Good. Very good. Okay. We need to stop this yeah. podcast. We should get off this train. It's probably we best. Where's he, we need to find an ending it's, for this podcast. I, I don't... In my mind, canon, it ended right there with your, your experience, Patrick. Thank you. So, uh, Thank you. you know. But this is the director's cut. Sorry, we heard you, fans. <laughs> we heard that you didn't get the closure you needed from this episode. Yeah. Where's so the we Mark's came back. <laughs> where's your service references? We have to have Rob do a dramatic reading instead of... Uh, uh, something I don't know what. Just the end of his article. The no, end of his article. Give us the end of your article. Of course. That's how we'll end this podcast. But make it dramatic. Make it real dramatic. Make it dramatic. Do you have it yeah. up? No. All right. Me, do do it in a voice. Just do a voice. We the people want it in a voice. I've talked to the uh, people hey, and they said they want it in wait. a voice. 
Yeah, so literally, you want me to read the end of my article again? Yeah, the last paragraph. Because that was sure. so you, you're doing the circular structure. Exactly. But this time, it's I'm making like, you it's happy. It's not even echo. It's just a literal circle. Oh wait, was that, to, was that what you read? That was the, the last graph. That <laughs> yeah. was the last graph. I was like, I thought I read the ending. Did I forget where I put that paragraph? <laughs> I didn't read the beginning. Read the first one then, and that's uh, how it go now out. Now it's art. Now it's art. Now it's art. Now it's art. Very clever. But make it fashion. In a way. I've been playing the Banner Saga for the last four years. Since 2014, I've been accompanying this small band of characters in their long odysseys through the end of the world, never quite knowing how all this was going to turn out, or who, if anyone, would make it out alive. I still think about some of the characters I lost from my own stupid decisions, though I must say I never lost anyone on the tactical battlefield, but instead at various inflection points in the game's visual novel narrative layer. I don't resent the game for this. It made those losses more painful and more shocking. One minute, everyone is alive and healthy, and the next, a friend and companion is lost to the most cruel and arbitrary death. It's not necessarily your fault, but it is your story, and you'll always wonder if maybe there was something you could have done differently. Shout out to Bowen for letting us use the track Miss You off the EP Pale Machine. Questions Find good out more gaming. about that. Gaming at vice.com. Dot zone, B O E N, etc. Danielle. Yeah. God. Wait, hold on. I just want to tell people that I'm doing Dead Cell streams every day. Dead Cell streams. Okay. No hot mics. What, we I got Dead Cell. You did one here? today. You did one today that was supposed to be 30 minutes and was two hours because you're too good at the game. Uh, uh, what my favorite part of the stream was there were people legitimately upset in the chat. They were like, fuck, you're not. You're not supposed to get this far in your first run. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, sorry. I had Jeff a really Grubb. good tactical build. Jeff Grubb fucking left the chat at one point after you beat a boss. <laughs> it was just flying up there in the pro zone lair. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm Rob, hanging you're up. Ready, for, ready for Evo, huh? I'm hanging up. E- Evo, uh, Dead go, Cells. Yes. Go read, go read the article from, uh, from uh, Eric Van Allen uh, about uh, Dragon Ball Fighter Z uh, at Evo and, and who to follow there. Watch Patrick next week play some Dead Cells. It's, I'm excited about, about that. Hell yeah, Prozone. All right, we already did Bowen. We're on Twitter at Waypoint. We're on Facebook at Waypoint Vice. We're on YouTube at Waypoint Vice. We're at twitch.tv slash Waypoint, and that's where you can watch Patrick all next week playing those Dead Cells. No more hot mics, more Dead Cells. Yeah, at least for the time being. All right, cool. Thank you, everyone, and I'm going to tell you to please... It was was all right cool in your script? It wasn't. There was a noise coming from down below, and I was trying to mask it. Yeah, there's like a weird silence. That one's not me. There's a noise. It's the monster. There's a noise from down below? Yeah, like Cloverfield (laughs) is starting in the back. Oh, we didn't talk about Cloverfield. I know. Shit. Part two. (laughs) Don't worry, there's going to be a part two. (laughs) Part two. We'll have a part two at some point in life. Uh, where can we find you online, Patrick? At Patrick Lowe. How about you, Rob? At Rob Zach. How about you, Austin? At Austin underscore Walker. Amazing. You can find me at Danielle R.I. And before I get eaten by whatever monster coming from the void is coming from below, I ask you to please be good and be good at it. Peace.
when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 